This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. Welcome to New Books and Sociology, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. I am your host, Rituparna Padgiri, and today I am going to be in conversation with Ina Perinutupa. Ina is a postdoctoral researcher in sociology at the University of Turku. Today, we will be discussing her book, Feminist Politics in Neoconservative Russia, an Ethnography of Resistance and Resources, published by the Bristol University Press in 2022. Ina, I welcome you to this interview and I'm very glad to have you here. Thank you, Ritu Parna. I'm really happy to be here. Right. So let me begin by asking you your main motivation behind writing this book. What was it that uh, drove you to, you know, write this book? Uh, that's a good question since I'm not from Russia. I'm from Finland, the neighboring country. But I had uh, I had studied Russian uh, during uh, school times and, and lived in Russia uh, during my university studies. And during those studies I, I uh, or, or stays, I had already kind of paid attention to the gender relations and, and kind of gender order in Russia. And then when I did my master's, I did it on... on um, self-help group in St. Petersburg and how women in this self-help group kind of turned towards this, uh, we could we could perhaps call it ultra-femininity in their life in order to kind of solve uh, issues and how they were uh, demanded a lot in the working life and then also in, in taking care of the family and, and, uh, and finding a husband and so on. So then I became kind of interested in the in the other side and and the feminism and and, and was there such a thing uh, this was also uh, my interest was also increased by the fact that Russia had turned into these towards these more uh, conservative policies in the 2000s uh, so these were some of the key reasons I guess also I think Russia has a very interesting feminist history that many might not be that um, familiar with. And yeah, so those could be some of the uh, reasons why I then started, wanted to discover feminism in Russia in, in 2010s. 
thank you very much for that comprehensive response um, my next question is kind of related because it draws from the motivation itself i mean your book is a very rich you know ethnographic work but i would like to know more about the methods that you have used as well as the sources in this book um so the book is an, a feminist ethnography as i uh yeah uh i conducted ethnographic field work in mainly in st petersburg and moscow uh uh in 2015 i did most of the ethnography and and then i i returned uh, i actually collaborated with some of the activists and and returned many times to kind of visit some uh, some key events um so I draw from 44 uh, interviews of 44 activists that I conducted mainly in 2015. But then a lot of uh, a big part of the material is actually based on online ethnography since a lot of feminist activism in 2010s took place in digital space and social media due to the kind of um, opportunity, political opportunity shrinking in other spaces. So uh online uh, observations uh, are a big part of the book also. Right. So you do talk about the feminist movement in Russia. And I would want to know, is it a grassroots based movement? And how has the movement evolved in the country? Uh, Yes, it's it's definitely a grassroots based uh, movement since the feminists are currently not able to operate uh, on an official level due to the political restrictions and and repression of uh, civic civic sector. Um, so they're not as one of my uh, the activists I interviewed uh, said, "Welcome to the chambers of power." So they have to operate from outside, kind of as out <laughs> as out from outside official politics. And this is also what I write about in in my book that feminist politics in this way is different kind of politics. They define it in different ways, but that's actually what what's always been kind of characteristic to feminist politics that feminists have redefined what politics is and challenged what how politics is defined. So here I refer to the fact that it's not only about official uh, party politics, for example. Um, if we if we compare this generation of activists that became activated in the 2010s to the to the earlier generation of feminists or women's activists in the 90s, uh, there's a big difference. As they were uh, in the 90s, they were actually able to to at least to some extent lobby and 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 take part in official politics. There was even a political bloc called Women uh, Women of Russia for a while. So nowadays, uh, this type of uh, action is not possible. There is no dialogue with decision makers. Uh, and this makes also the uh, feminist activism a bit more radical in the sense that they have to operate from outside. And the other thing is that they do not have uh, economic support. Uh, whereas in the 90s, uh, women's organizations was act- were actually supported quite generously from abroad because it was thought that uh, if feminism and women's organizations are supported, then democracy is supported in Russia. Did I answer your question? <laughs> yeah, it's very interesting. So could you also talk a little bit about how feminist politics is conducted in neoconservative and authoritarian Russia? Because you did talk about how, you know, uh, feminism was supported when democracy was considered to be intricately connected to it. And what forms does it take in this political context? 
So in the book, I, I suggest that feminism actually takes four key aspects, and these are reparative politics, politics of sheltering, politi- politics of expertise, and politics of appearances. And they are kind of the book is divided to chapters that discuss these four dimensions. So the the first dimension, poli- uh, reparative politics. Uh, discusses how feminism is is very personal project, and I think this has been uh, throughout history uh, typical for feminism in Russia and and elsewhere. Um, it's it's very it starts from one's own experiences of oppression or patriarchal experiences, and then working on those. But at the same time, it's very social, uh, political, and social. In this part, I, I discuss how therapeutic and political elements come together uh, um, because um, the activists discuss different types of vulnerabilities. Um, some have faced gendered violence and want to uh, want to engage in activism to fight against the culture of gendered uh, cultural, culture of violence, as they term it. Uh, others identify as non-heterosexuals um, and and discuss these types of uh, vulnerabilities in the current political context in which um, uh, due to laws such as the so-called homopropaganda law in Russia, you cannot be openly express your non-normative sexuality. Uh, so these uh, very personal uh, issues come together with the politics so at the same time as they the activists uh kind of deal with these issues on a personal level they engage in in politics to kind of spread the word and understanding of feminist ideas um and and my point in this part is to kind of that it's not possible to separate these two the therapeutic aspects and the political aspects and one example would be uh the feminist uh, there were, for example, feminist theater um, festivals during which there were plays on gendered violence. And then following the plays, there would be this discussion where people would share their own experiences of violence, but also kind of aim to uh, spread the word. So they were really entangled and these spaces would kind of turn into these therapeutic sessions. Um, well, that was a long explanation on the first one. I'll, I'll try to be shorter with the, the rest. The second dimension, politics of sheltering, argues that you cannot study feminism in, in such a rep- repressive and authoritarian context as, as contemporary Russia without taking its spatial aspects into account. So uh, producing feminist spaces is, is a pivotal, ta- pivotal task for the feminist activists. And such spaces are produced both for safety, as I mentioned, for therapeutic and, and reasons and for those who've been real vulnerable in the in the society, but also uh, in order to kind of create these alternative realities, which we call um, prefigurative spaces. So, for example, uh, queer skirt parties that I visited in, in different cities would be an example of such prefigurative spaces in which alternative futures and norms are kind of enacted and tested and lived uh, among the activists. Uh, The third dimension, politics of expertise, discovers the centrality of knowledge for the movement. Uh, uh, Consciousness raising has been in the kind of heart of feminist activism since the 19th century when when feminism, uh, first feminist activists appeared in Russia. Um, and and the interviews with the activists show how feminist ideas 
having access to those has has had an, had an immense effect on them and how they've been able to, for example, take political agency. So knowledge, I think, is in the center of of, of feminist uh, politics in many ways. But there are also struggles over who gets to be a feminist expert in public. So there are movement in, internal struggles over knowledge also. And finally, politics of appearance is the fourth dimension shows and illustrates and discusses what happens to activism in this kind of very repressive context where most of the opportunities for activism are online and 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 the part looks at how the online reality becomes actually more real than the reality offline as you cannot uh it's been it's made really hard to make demonstrations and so on so it kind of traces some of the the forms activism takes in this kind of context and i think it's quite relevant not only in russia but everywhere that authoritarianism is and conservative ideas are gaining space um this final part in particular right uh, and uh, what role does pussy riot play in this context because it is a very famous and global name i mean all over the world we do hear about them Yes, and Pussy Riot is a kind of cultural, uh, I mean, they visited even some uh, American popular cultural TV shows, so they're really well known. But um, even if Pussy Riot is globally, uh, without a doubt, the best known example of Russian feminism, uh, I did not study uh, Pussy Riot. Um, In my study, I wanted to rather show the manifold nature of activism and the many forms feminism takes. So I, I wanted to interview as many types of feminists I could um, and and also illustrate the fact that feminists are, are not on animals. So uh, there are uh, lots of very different points of view on, on feminism among feminists. And, and this becomes also clear as, as many of the feminists I interviewed actually criticized Pussy Riot a lot. And some might have even said that they are not feminists at all. So here again, it becomes visible that there is this which is not, I think, uh, only uh, connected to Russia, but a wider phenomena that actually uh, activists, feminists often struggle over what type of feminism is the right kind. And and this also connects to what I discussed earlier, the kind of feminist knowledge and the struggles over who gets to be an expert. One other thing that really interested me was you talking about how reactivity becomes a constraint for the Russian feminist movement. If you could talk a little more about it for our listeners with a few examples, that would be great. Uh, yeah, uh, it's nice that you noticed this. And I, I think it's an important aspect to activism during digital age, uh, but especially feminist in such a challenging context where most of the opportunities are, are online. So some of the activists I interviewed, feminists, were critical of the fact that activism often takes place as a reaction to something else. So it, it whether whether a politician says says something or or there's an article on on media on something and and then they would respond to that. Um, so this uh, this connects to what I discussed about the last dimension, politics of appearances, uh, in in my book, and the the way uh, actually activists have in many ways adopted the media logic. So they know what, how to operate in order to receive uh, visibility and go get get their actions go viral online. But this is also kind of a problem if if activism is only about reactivity. Um, so one more example would be that um, 
some of the activists who were really skilled in in online activism that is activism that would uh, receive a lot of um, attention they would play with with the way media often writes about or gets interested about shocking or somehow uh, controversial actions so they would kind of create these uh, create these shocking events in order to be interesting enough to be kind of noticed in in media or or that their um, post would go viral um and you need to read my book to see some of the most kind of i think um interesting examples of this kind of actual um activism but let's say what well, i could share one if we had ta- if we have time i'm not sure um uh, one example even quite confusing for me coming from outside Russia would be uh, the example where a group of feminists had decided to hijack um, publicity from a conservative also uh, religious group in Russia. So they had, they were supposed to have a demonstration that day in, in St. Petersburg canals, um, these pro-lifers who kind of are in many ways on the opposite opposite side to feminists as they, for example, oppose abortion and so on. Uh, so what the activists and the feminists did was hijack their uh, public, publicity by dressing as the orthodox activists and, and renting a boat and then taking pictures and publishing those pictures before the actual orthodox protest would take place so that these pictures were then uh, spread would then spread online as uh, in so that people thought that this was the actual orthodox protest, even though in reality people would actually realize when looking at the pictures more closely that they were playing with the orthodox um, statements, but actually sending a feminist message from in between the lines. This is quite a, uh, even for me, quite a confusing action but one of the examples of why act how activists would kind of play with the media logic and and have very kind of skilled and creative ways of uh, navigating the challenging um uh context um yeah but uh, but talking about reactivity i think due to the fact that uh, the kind of media and digital reality we all live in, despite where where we come from, uh, it's really important to kind of pay attention that not all activism is around, uh, is kind of an answer to someone else. And here I think, um, for example, the prefigurative spaces I mentioned earlier, where the feminists uh, would create their alternative kind of realities and social relations and live and, and test them, such as the queer skirt parties, where actually anyone, regardless of their gender and, and sexuality, would sew their own skirts and dance the night away, uh, are these types of places where uh, that are not based on reactivity, but rather their own needs and what they want to actually, what's their long-time goal and, uh, goal and dream uh, uh, for the social movement. I hope I was clear enough <laughs> with this. Yes, absolutely. So, I mean, you also talk about the feminist backlash and it is also a global phenomenon that we do see in Russia, India or many other parts of the West as well. So how would be some of the ways in which this oppositions to the feminist movement in Russia are played out? And could you also talk about some of the tactics and strategies that state and other agencies deploy to, you know, uh, resist these movements? Feminism is belittled uh, and uh, 
the issues they raise are are depoliticized. This happened already with Pussy Riots, Punk Prayer. The the attention was directed to different things than they aimed at, the, the feminist issues they were kind of raising. Rather, uh, discussion was on what they did in the Orthodox space and so on, and they were uh, women behaving in a way that should have women women shouldn't behave on. Um, furthermore, feminists are produced as foreign uh, to the kind of uh, this is in quotes uh, the authentic Russian culture. So, even if this is not the case, but in in the current polit- the current political regime wants to kind of. Uh, <laughs> return this idea of traditional values and, and Russia going hand in hand. Uh, even if we kind of, my book shows and many other beautiful researches, books books on, on feminist history show that actually there is a very rich uh, feminist history in Russia. But these are some of the kind of ways to make feminism seem uh, smaller and, and kind of irrelevant. At the same time, it's obvious that due to the increasing re- repression uh, and the situation getting even worse in Russia, uh, feminists are indeed viewed as a threat for the political regime. Um, a couple of them have more recently, for example, been given the title of foreign agent. Uh, that is a governmental tool to repress non-governmental activism and, and to threaten individ- individuals or groups with fines or even imprisonment if they continue to engage with activism. Uh, so so this is one of the examples, uh, very concrete examples of how it is in many ways that also the, the power holders try to make their work harder and, and some many activists have had to also leave Russia and na- they now operate from abroad. And how do you think feminist activists make sense of feminism in their lives? What would be some of the resources that they use to fight this backlash? Um, I think this is a feminism as a lens is a kind of metaphor that I often hear. It's not just in Russia, but but the activists in Russia too use the metaphor of a lens, uh, and they say that feminism is a lens to understand oneself and also leave back the patriarchal self. So, with the help of feminist knowledge, they have been able to uh, view themselves in another light and see perhaps the heteronormative order they rather uh, they used to live in and kind of challenge that and start living a different life uh the interviews that i did show that feminism has been an immense therapeutic resource for the activists as they have both kind of been able to help themselves and others but also take political agency and and when talking about the resources it's a good question and one of the key themes in my book uh, actually the question of resourceful activists was 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 what i wanted to study in this book as as one person i encountered during my field works talked about resourceful feminists and this puzzled me as as the activists often lacked economic resources uh, but via my ethnography i discovered that the key resources that feminists do have access to are are indeed feminist knowledge as well as media-related resources. Uh, That is the ability to um, create these media appearances that then go viral and and bring lots of visibility to feminism. And this connects to the fact that most of the political opportunities are online and in social media in Russia. 
uh, and these resources does matter a lot. And this also um, increases the struggles between feminists as some activists become more visible than others and this enables them to become celebrity activists who then can accumulate um, even economic resources and, and have a lot of discursive power. Um, but at the same time, we must not forget the activists who who are not that visible but do a lot of important work in kind of this invisible space. So I'll talk a lot about this invisible, visible dimension and the kind of aspects. So feminism takes many very spectacular and very visible uh, dimensions in Russia, but also hides for many reasons that are, I think, very important to discover. Uh, I was going to ask you about what role resources play in the Russian feminist movement, but I think you've already, you know, answered the question. I think so. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> right. So, uh, last question, Nina. Uh, I know that you know you use ethnography extensively, and it is a very interesting method that sociologists use. But uh, are there any challenges that you also faced during the data collection process? I would also want to know, uh, because you do have a section on this in your book, about what kind of special attention you gave uh, in order to maintain ethical clarity while doing this work. Because in the recent years, ethnography and, you know, there are debates on how ethical um, standards need to be maintained. Hmm. Yeah, that's a really important question. I'll first answer the first one, uh, which was on the challenges, I guess. Uh there were moments I had to think uh, and and kind of stop and think, should I be in a place? Um, there were festivals. I took place, uh, I took part in festivals that then would be kind of uh, closed down by police. And at times I decided to leave a place. I decided I shouldn't be somewhere. But these were kind of, there were these moments where I wasn't sure. <laughs> should I stay because of the, because it would be good for the research, but then also to think about my own safety and navigate the kind of, that was not that familiar to me but overall I was not the I think the one in the challenging position uh, the feminists and the activists who take many risks because of their commitment to feminism are uh, and also their kind of positions vary in many ways some, some, some are more vulnerable because of their say non-heterosexuality or other types of things than others or ethnicity for example um, so I think activism is con- consuming everywhere but in this type of uh, repressive context it becomes really challenging and consuming and I think we need to discuss um, or it's really important to kind of discuss what would then be kind of sustainable activism in these types of contexts and everywhere Um, about the ethical clarity it's truly a really important uh, uh, question that has to be always in the core of any research and I think it is uh, me I was conducting feminist ethnography which kind of always focuses on on um, making visible all power relations and positionalities, which is, I think, a very useful tool and also being really aware of the researcher's kind of privilege and position. I think this is a good tool for being aware all the time, being aware of the different power relations and hierarchies and making them visible. Um, some of the issues I had to work through and consider were questions such as who do I want to give a voice and, and what I wanted to do was to interview as different activists as possible uh, from who identified with different schools of feminism and both those who were really visible but then the ones that were not uh, and, and perhaps looking for reasons why they were not visible. 
I was also wanted to avoid romanticizing the feminist movement and instead show the movement internal frictions and struggles too, because I think activism is always about tension and struggles. So it would be easy to romanticize feminist movement since I am myself a feminist and I, I, of course admire what they're doing. But I think it's important to uh, also look at the rela- internal movement internal relations in a critical from a critical aspect. Um, but yeah, at the end of the day, the most important thing, I guess, is that these activists whom I really admire um, because of all their important work gave their time to me and shared their stories with me. So I wanted to show them as agents, uh, at least trying to uh, make a difference in their life, even if this is really challenging uh, at this point or in the 2010s. And, and one thing I perhaps didn't say that in the 2010s, there was this still there was still this alternative media online in Russia, which does not exist anymore after after the invasion of uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine, as the some of the laws have become even more restrict. So uh, many of the things I write about in the book are not possible anymore in the extent that they were. Well. Thank you so much, Ina, for this lovely conversation. I absolutely enjoyed reading your book. And I'm sure that after listening to this podcast, a lot of other readers will also pick up your book. So thank you once again for doing this for New Books Network. Thank you so much, Rito Parna. It was a true joy to discuss with you.